Well, as you know, I'm just unbelievably proud of Australia, this great country, and particularly because in so many fields of endeavour we're taking on the world's best and we're beating them. And this is true whether you look at the industry level. I mean, some of our manufacturers are just taking on the best in the world and beating them in the toughest markets in the world. It's true of our sportsmen and women. It's true of our movie makers. And an area perhaps which isn't as widely recognised is in the, in the music industry. Uh, consistently, Australia does very, very well. And no-one has done better in the music industry than in excess. Welcome to In Excess, Access All Areas, episode 89, the podcast that aims to dive deep in everything in excess, get the band in the Rock Hall of Fame, have a lot of fun along the way, and remember and celebrate everything about the band. Hello, B. how are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Happy Australia Day, you Aussie. Oh, yes. Yes, it huh? was a, well, it was a good Aussie day. You're a Brit these days. What are you actually officially? Well, officially is one thing, but what, how I feel is another. So, right. so you, I am you, Aussie. You're advantage of our beautiful weather and not signing up to be an Australian. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> it's one of those things I go, yeah, I'm doing it. I've got I've got it all ready and something else happens and it's just been on the burner for the last um, 17 years. What about James, <laughs> your husband? Oh, James, as soon as he could become an Australian, he was an Australian. <laughs> and the kids are Australian, so... I'm Australian. Well, he's doing it for the cricket. He wants to attach himself to our Ashes win. But uh, needless, we waffle on about that. How's your excess week been? We've had a massive week for the podcast, I guess. Um, who would have thought that an episode on Michael would have delivered such a massive response from the audience out there? We probably had our biggest downloads for one episode in the history of starting. So uh, thank you to all those who checked us out. Yeah, absolutely. It just shows you that the love for Michael still exists and it's still, well, it's not going away, is it? Well, sticking with our wacky double episode to start the year, Michael probably came back from afar and from up above to sort of straighten us up. And uh, I guess we we had some good feedback 
just a lot of listeners who have checked it out. So mm. uh, we do hope that if you have been one of those, you're checking in this week as we probably celebrate all things relevant to Australia Day week, which is in excess, and we'll sort of go a bit deeper later on. But I guess across the board, B, you've been quite busy this week. I think the uh, the word Clapton came across your desk. Is that right? Yeah, he got touched last night and he says he's ready. So when you're ready, Hayden, tomorrow yeah. night. Tomorrow night. Shall we do it tomorrow night? Shall we interview? Oh, hopefully I don't have a hot date or anything like that. Maybe it's a date. Oh, hot date. <laughs> Moulin Rouge coming, coming again for you then. I went out to see Moulin Rouge the other night to a, a, a well, the music, everybody knows it, et cetera, there. And uh, it was a great show, a lot of fun. Typical hammy sort of acting, but with some great music. And, um, yeah, obviously the audience had a good time. And it's great to get out in this sort of, I guess, this living with COVID world to do some nice things finally again. Mm, and did you see me with my daughter? The supermodel? My little supermodel. I think it was a really cool little day that we had. Yeah. Dressed her up and uh, got some photos. So, yeah, watch out. Now, what's come across your NXS desk this week? What's been high on rotational focus for you? Anything particularly for our listeners? Well, there's been a quite a few um, lovely messages, like I say, about Michael, um, which was really nice. But no, nothing too much. Well, what are you thinking? What you got? Well, as well, we- I mean, we've had something awful happen just now. Well, which I'm yes, devastated we- about. Well, as we're recording, unfortunately, the news about Timmy's court case came through and it was a negative result for him. And yes. we won't dive deep into the, the minutiae of what went on there, uh, good or bad or ugly. But it seems like Tim sort of lost his case with uh, the finger, finger injury. And it's always going to be very difficult, as I said, prior to us getting on to sort of prove or to necessarily prove things, you know, in any case, no matter how sort of uh, bona fide it is. But um, thoughts out with Timmy and um, I guess, as I said, it's just been one of those probably stressful things for him over the last sort of four or five years. And hopefully uh, there is some sort of easing of the pressure. Hopefully. You know what, though? I I went, um, someone told me about it and then um, I passed it on to our patrons. And then the next minute I had a look up on Hutch Nation and be knowing to Lisa McIntosh, she'd already put a picture of Michael, which came to my head of Michael giving the bird with the one finger on the motorbike. Right. And I thought, yes, Michael, that is right. So I've reposted that. <laughs> right, okay. A bit macabre at the finger, huh? Mm. There you go. Kill the pain you feel. Kill the pain you feel. The love for Michael still exists. I put a post out and I said, Tell me your memory or a moment with Michael that you treasure. And there's some lovely ones. I'll, I'll share them later. I know you're saying something. There are you in your dreams. Your face, it tells the story. The page is stained with tears. Kill the pain you feel. You kill the pain you feel. Australia Day is a pretty significant day on our calendar. Obviously, every country around the world has a significant day. So, I guess in the US, they have Independence Day, and uh, we've all seen the movie. In England, what is the sort of national holiday there, B? What do you call it? What time of year is it? How does it all go down? St. George's Day. 
And we all go to the pub and get pissed. Yes. Okay. That sounds like (laughs) the Irish uh, St. Paddy's Day. Is it something similar? Yeah, it is. It is. But it's not. I I mean, I haven't been back really for like 12 years. Okay. Want to celebrate. We, we, you know, this week, uh, if you were uh, living under a rock, you probably wouldn't see this. But uh, we do know that John, uh, not John, I should say John Stevens, not John Farris, Mm -hmm. uh, and Andrew got up at the Sydney uh, Harbour. And I think that must have channeled our episode from a couple of weeks ago, Bebe, with the big Sydney Harbour uh, (laughs) and the big Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House gig. And they were sort of just, Andrew and, and John were road testing, I think. I reckon they've got some inspiration there because I reckon we had that idea three weeks ago and here they are up there singing there with the fireworks and everything oh no did we get commission on that do you reckon well there's no jetpack and i was looking for oh, kirk there and there, there was, no was. There. <laughs> there was did you not see the guy what there was a jetpack yes there was yeah oh, and he was all i'm not i'm not there was a guy with a jetpack with the water that spouts out kirk was it Kirk? No, it wasn't Kirk. <laughs> no, but um, and he was all on fire. Oh, you have to oh, check okay. it out. I thought. Well, was- I, I, I'm going to have to dive deep on that because they've just stolen their creative ideas. What's the chances <laughs> of that? Okay, we have uh, been very uh, blessed in the last couple of weeks with some new patrons coming on board. B and uh, we have a bunch of existing uh, patrons and things. I'm not sure if we've got any new ones this week, but I'll throw it to you. Well. We have now started selling our um, kits on eBay, and someone. <laughs> decided to buy two at a time. So I thought, wow. And his name is Michael. Great name, hey? So welcome to the podcast, Michael. I know you're very excited to be part of it. I've already sent him a little pack off and Carrie-Anne's going to be sending you your digital goodies. And I said, mate, you've got 88 episodes to catch up on. Fantastic. Well, maybe maybe that's why we've had such a a deep dive this week. He's probably caught up. But uh, (laughs) we will uh, throw to you and welcome all the existing podcast uh, patrons and uh, welcome them to this week's episode. Say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least. Hello. Well, hello to our honorary members, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Cameron Adams and Mary Woods. Big hello to our patrons, Sue D, Joe Robbins, Carmen, Laurie, Carrie-Anne, Danielle, Sarah Markram, Sarah Camia, Dr. Jim, Katie, Felicia, Lisa Mack, Lisa Calloway, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Matt, Linda, Vern, Yvonne, Caroline, Amanda H, Amanda V, Leon, David, Tracy, Paul Jolie, Paul Boozy, Paul Bridges, Paul Buckley, Sandrine, Warren, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Stefan, Val, Jim, Matey, Kelly, John, Jackie, Sean, Sheila, Shannon, Helen, Brett, Suzanne, Glenn, Laurel, Ace, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Laurie, Jill, oh my god, I'm running out of breath, Peter, Matthew, Peter Law, aka Leos, Lily, Jamie, Heidi, Paula, Lisa, Angie, and our new patron, Michael. Also, before we run out of uh, steam and um, Michael comes in, big happy birthday to Leon, Stefan, Jackie, Shannon, and Glenn. Happy birthday. And 
Uh, big shout out. I also want to do just for the newsletter, B, a, a question without notice. What, what does volume two, number four mean? I don't understand the, the actual uh, monikers around those. Uh, for someone who's running and, and co-hosting this podcast, do you want to educate me? Volume one or series two? <laughs> okay. We'll get Laurie to educate us on it, but it's a bloody good newsletter going out this last couple of weeks. So shout out to the, the girls yeah, there who are really putting good. that together. Uh, gives us a sort of a, a weekly content update about, you know, memories and things in the past and things going on. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, as I said, it makes great reading. If you haven't checked it out yet, do yourself a favor. Uh, you can sort of download it. And can we give a shout out to Foxy? Because she's gone AWOL. We don't know where she is. Oh. So if anybody knows what's happened to Foxy, tell her that we're all thinking of her. Okay. Old world, mm. new world. Okay. Come back to yeah. the old world, Foxy. Come back to the old world, Foxy. Yeah. All right. Well, we often do a hint at this part of the uh, the intro where we like to sort of uh, explain what our major topic is going to be on a little bit later after the news. But uh, it has been Australia Day this week uh, in this beautiful country of ours. And uh, in excess, you know, I wouldn't say a quintessentially Australian. They never use the, uh, you know, the jingoistic sort of uh, cringy stuff to sort of sell records like uh, Men at Work. Uh, but they are very proud Australians. And we just sort of thought tying into their career, uh, we've done some recent podcast series on, you know, in excess in America, in excess in England. Um, and this is going to basically be sort of part one, in excess in Australia, part one, uh, 1977 to 1986, where a lot of the overseas listeners be who may be caught on to in excess from listening like thieves and kick and X onwards may not have an appreciation and knowledge or an understanding of just where it all started for them there uh, here in, here in Australia, because I think as Chris Murphy has often said, like a good athlete, they hone their craft in this country, touring and, and recording and playing live and, and all of the you know media stuff and everything they did between 77 and early 86 uh, up until Australia made uh, was very much honing their craft to go global. So we thought in Australia Day week it would be a great chance just to dive a little bit deeper. And for those who are into the uh, Shabu Shabar and the swing era and that sort of stuff, uh, we're going to pay some particular attention to that those albums in that era. So looking forward to uh, maybe sharing some stuff that uh, I was a part of be growing up that maybe didn't hit your no, uh, area of yeah. focus. Yeah, no, I'm um, really looking forward to it. Yeah, so uh, we will go into that in a moment's time. But uh, what's the time for now? It's time for the news. Hi, it's Dave from England, and you're listening to In Excess Access All Areas with Hayden and B. And now it's time for the news. All right. Well, in news uh, this week, B, we can start with the charts. And uh, unfortunately, it's uh, slipped out of the, the top 50. It's gone from 45 to no man's land. So come on, everybody. Straight A week. <gasps> patriotism. Get in there and buy it and uh, get it back into the uh, major charts and stuff like that. So, uh, uh, yeah, question without notice or a story without notice. Uh, come on, guys, do, do, do yourself a favour. We need this back in the charts. That cannot be it. Yes, it's only had two or three weeks out of the charts in about eight years, so uh, we need to uh, get it going. Also, too, as we said a bit earlier, we had uh, Andrew join John Stevens live uh, at the Sydney Harbour, uh, well, Sydney Harbour Bridge uh, and the Opera House there. Uh, I had YouTube a little bit earlier. It was on ABC iView on the country here. You probably get a better production and a better quality version from there, but you can YouTube and you will see it. 
basic version. There's a guy doing a bit of a Kirk imitation and loses a note or two when he comes to the saxophone. Oh, but, he uh, did a little bit, didn't he? He did do a little bit of a Kirk. I thought, oh, is that Kirk like, out there getting oh, some, uh, no. some some jetpack time? Kirk. But uh, it was uh, it was one of someone from John's band. But um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so that was obviously played. Also, too, the Don't Change Boys last night played at Wentworthville. So if anyone has been to that gig, we uh, well, Karen Peters aside, um, if anyone's been there, give us a, a rundown because the boys from Don't Change are really sort of excited about getting out touring again. And uh, that was, a, 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 I guess, a highly promoted gig. So we'd love to hear any feedback on our platforms about that. I know previously when they played in Wollongong, there was a lot of posts from, I think, Glenn Davies and maybe Carmen and the gang there who all met up at one of the gigs. So uh, we always love to uh, to hear anything that's gone on with some of those those gigs. I've been postponed. Who? I have. Which one's that? Coffs Harbour's been postponed. Oh, has it? Is that the Hoey Moey pub? Yes. No, the, the Mooney Tavern. Right. Okay. Well, can say in America, the uh, NXS uh, kick guys, they're playing at Daryl's Hall, uh, Daryl Hall's house again. Uh, now, that's a, a little bit of distance away. That's in October this year. Uh, prices are $110. But uh, we did, I think last year, when we first started off, we had a bit of a live stream going for that gig when they played at Daryl's house, if you may remember. And we, did, we were yes. uh, we were sort of watching that through a live streaming thing. So I guess it's a pretty significant sort of gig on their chapter uh, and on, the, on their calendar and things. So, um, yeah, again, if you if you are in New York or upstate New York, see and access uh, the kick experience over there, uh, do justice to uh, the band's catalogue. And New Sensation are also in America on the southeast um, of US, the US, and yep. where are they playing? They're playing at uh, on the 29th, uh, which is in probably in a few days, at the boatyard in Lake Norman, and that's um, NC. What would that be? That would be North Carolina. North Carolina, February the fourth, uh, February the fourth at Mad Life Stage and Studios at Woodstock in GA. Where would that be? Well, GA would be. Uh, Georgia, I would think so, but uh, Woodstock might not be the same Woodstock that was upstate New York for okay. that famous gig. But uh, GA would be Georgia. Okay, and then in March they're in Atlanta, yep. and in May they are going to Avalondale Estate, which sounds quite nice, doesn't it? All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, again, uh, we've always tried to be a big promoter of NXS concerts across the globe, whether they're covers or real or, you know, uh, ex-singers uh, chipping in with their gigs. So uh, do yourself a favour. Also, to a little bit of NXS news this week, Triple M did have uh, a really nice little vault uh, of some Michael interviews that uh, have been syndicated with Apple. So I guess uh, on Triple M Australia, uh, there is a sort of, I guess it's called the Triple M Vault. There's about nine minutes 40 of different little sound bites of Michael talking. And I know it's on the sort of the Apple sort of podcast uh, platforms as well. And that's sort of something there to, um, I had to listen to this week and it was just lovely hearing his voice again in a certain interview setting. It feels yeah. like he's still with us, you know. And speaking of those who aren't with us this week, B, we had unfortunately lost Meatloaf this week. So mm. uh, Valet Meatloaf, 74. Uh, I won't say I was a massive fan. There are people though who were very rabid about his music and it's always sad to see a, a, a rocker hit the, uh, either go up north to the, the stars or go down to hell, you know, like a bat. But uh, <laughs> he uh, did pass away at 74, which... In some respects, he always was one of those guys you thought he might pass away a bit earlier because he always seemed to be a bit unhealthy, didn't he? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, Gary has got something to say about that. He did. I heard him post about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you're, I'd like to read it out if that's yeah. okay. So Gary did a, a post six days ago when poor Meatloaf lost his life. What's his real name, by the way? Marvin Lee Aday. Oh. Yeah. Mm. But as Dane Ed Everidge used to call him, uh, and referred to him in a famous interview. She said, do I call you Meat or Mr. Loaf? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite fun. I never thought I'd be commenting about Meat Loaf, but rest in peace, Meat. I did not want to like the guy as when we lived and played in WA as the Farris brothers, we were asked to stop playing so the kids who hired us for, for the gig could put on bat out of hell. I guess we must have been crap and deserved it, but it didn't sit well with us. Fast forward and meet and in excess would run into each other at Countdown and other shows and they would come to our shows and hang. Truly a larger than life character, great voice and an overall nice human. Heaven's getting very full these days. I'm just saying, I'm not going anywhere between you and me. Yeah. GGB. <laughs> yeah. Moving along a little bit, uh, there's a very uh, popular show at the moment on some of the streaming channels and some of the pay TV channels called Euphoria. Now, a lot of fans out there are very, very rabid about this. I think there's a a girl from the latest uh, Spider-Man movie in it, but uh, In Excess are getting a little bit of hang time on the show, B. So Never Tear Us Apart has been played uh, during sort of some of the episodes and Mm. uh, Mystify has been being played in some of these episodes as well. So we do know there's a lot of fans out there who love their streaming, you know, um, binge watching. And this show called Euphoria has had some in excess time, which is uh, particularly encouraging. Speaking of which, also, too, there was a good article that came across my desk this week, but it was probably published around sort of Michael's sort of anniversary of his passing uh, by uh, Rhino. Now, Rhino was a label there that helped release some of the material overseas uh, around the start of this century, around 2001 to 2002. But uh, there was a good review on Kick there, um, although there was one error regarding Mystify that they made in the article. But uh, if you want to do a, a deep dive on a, a review of the Kick album, uh, go to Rhino article, November 22, November, well, sorry, November 22, 2021, and you will see a, a good write-up about that. And also, too, we'd like to give a bit of a shout-out to uh, Dr. Jim and Lisa Urban and all the gang and everybody who's been involved in a lot of this uh, signature acquisition over the course of time. Uh, I do believe the petition groups out there uh, who are putting the In Excess into the Hall of Fame sort of uh, campaign together are up to 6,800 petition signatures, which is pretty good. Very, very good. Yes, I've done a big shout out to them on Instagram. Yeah. So well done, guys. Yeah. And look, this is probably just over 12 months there. And, you know, uh, hopefully through, you know, us promoting that and through the natural platform and growth and, and hearsay, it does sort of become a little bit uh, larger and we can sort of get that up, you know, to 20,000 over the next 12 months. And it just keeps adding and adding and adding. Once you get to, you know, a few hundred thousand, it becomes pretty compelling, doesn't it? You know, yeah. so mm-hmm. um, and for those who don't know the criteria, there is a fan vote, you know, in terms of getting nominated. So it does all help. And any sort of attention uh, towards this nomination process does, does always help. But B, that's the news of the week. We'll tie it up there. Hey, this is Tim Farris. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up.
is Ella from Middleburg, the Netherlands. You're listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and Dee. And now it's time for the topic of the week. All right, B. Well, here we are. It's Australia Day, and we want to get into all things about In Excess pre-superstardom, 1977 to 1986. And I guess if people have seen, you know, the Never Tear Us Apart miniseries, it was a bit of an eye-opener as to uh, the journey and the ascent that the band took. And I think a lot of, you know, grease and grease and oil and hard work and travel and commitment was something that uh, a lot of people never quite appreciated about their ascent to success. Um feels a bit different these days, doesn't it, when someone breaks through? You know, they put something on a sort of a media platform or on social media and it blows up and they don't have to even leave their home or their suburb, you know? That's right. And they can do it in the comfort of their home with their well, iPhone. you know, I, I live in a place here in Melbourne called Mentone and about 15 k's away there's a place called Frankston, mm-hmm. as we in Australia love to do. We love to abbreviate, so we call it Franger. But that's where... Huh? I didn't know that. I didn't know you called it that. We call it Franger, Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a different reference in England, I guess. Uh, Is it but, nice uh, now? It used to be a bit rough out there, didn't it? Well, there's there's good Frankston uh, <laughs> and bad Frankston, and there's good, well, good Franger and bad Franger, okay? <laughs> but uh, if you know that uh, Tones and I, who had the song Dance Monkey, uh, that's where she's from. She was literally busking sort of around sort of Burke Street in our major city here in Melbourne and a few different areas, and suddenly she put something up on, on one of the platforms. Next thing you know, you know, 100 million downloads later, you know, she's probably worth a couple, you know, 20, 30 million bucks and she hasn't had to really go tour around the world that much. So it's a bit of a different sort of industry now um, as to how you get yourself out there. And I guess with COVID, there's been a limitation for bands to travel and do different things as well. All that aside, I guess uh, let's just go back a little bit of time to, to, to In Excess and uh, as you famously know, B, where they formed. Uh, do you want to let the, the non-avid listener know where the band literally formed? In a bedroom. Is yeah. that what you mean? <laughs> well, there were certain dates anonymous to it and well, things like that, wasn't there? Yeah, well, you know, you had Dr. Dolphin was in one bedroom, which was yeah. Andrew's bedroom, and then you had um, Guinness in Tim's bedroom. Yeah. They're all playing at different tempos, and I think, I think I don't know if it was Kurt or, hang on a minute, Dr. Dolphin sounds okay. So that's when mm. they started to form, and then yeah. they went down into the garage. And yeah. then, yeah, and then when by the time they decided to change their name to In Excess yeah. was the actual date of 1977. I think it was Tim's birthday, the day that Elvis Presley yeah. passed away. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and uh, In Excess were born on the northern beaches at Whale Beach. One of the things I want to highlight in this instance here is the band formed, but it took three years, literally from about August 77 to around October 1980, for them to actually release their first album. Mm. That's interesting in itself that they honed their craft. They played lots of covers. Uh, they did lots of stuff, you know, touring around sort of the, the boondocks and the out, outbacks of uh, WA and, and all throughout the country. Uh, so much so they were almost doing something like 300, you know, gigs a year, sometimes two in a night and things like that. But one of the things that they were really, really committed to, and I guess part of this particular era, was playing live and actually honing your craft by, by playing. And often athletes or people sort of perfecting a, uh, a hobby or a task are often sort of, uh, I guess, told to, you know, do 10,000 hours, <laughs> you know, it's in terms true. of their craft. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, Chris Murphy famously said, you know, if we're not, you know, uh, rehearsing, you know, we're playing live. If we're not playing live, we're recording. If we're not recording, we're doing media. You know, we're always going to do things that, you know, keep honing, you know, where you're at and to eventually make it to Wembley one day. Mm-hmm. The genesis of those skills and that ability just to sort of come out of Wembley and play Guns in the Sky and just come out at the drop of a hat and rip through a, a, a performance has a lot to do with these early days. go back to sort of the first album we're not probably going to go through every album chart position of every particular song and things like that but we're going to sort of dive a little bit deeper about them and probably for my benefit oh sorry I should say for your benefit B and some of the listeners part of my growing up this was I guess a band of my youth and part of the passion for doing this podcast you know it'd be interesting just to share some things that, that that I was witness at the time being this young Australian kid growing up and just seeing this band sort of climb there and one of the things that, you know, we've said on previous episodes is we took a massive amount of pride when they conquered the world because I guess we'd all been part of a, of a followship, not a fellowship, but a, a followship of the band and seeing some of these humble early days. Now, on our very first episode, B, we talked a little bit about where we first saw In Excess and I think you were at the Odeon in uh, the UK, in London. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And I think for me it was on, you know, Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. That's right. <laughs> you know, with the song Simple Simon. So... And what year was um, so that? 1980. Okay. So there's some real oddities around this era, which we'll just sort of share some anecdotes. So they've recorded a song called Simple Simon, and they actually, uh, and I think We Are The Vegetables might have been the B-side or whatever there, but, but they didn't, when they went to record their debut album, the song never appeared on the album, which is for some reason I've never quite had an explanation. And it's probably something we never really asked the band when we've interviewed them, but Normally a, a single that's ahead of an album release would be on the album. But when they did release the debut album there uh, with the beautiful cover of the sort of the, you know, isographics there in uh, the infographics uh, in Bondi, they only released one single. And I think you posted on one of our episodes last week where Michael's talking about, oh, we just want to get in record the next album. Yeah. You know, when he's talking to, to I think, Molly there on Yes, Countdown. that's right. Yeah. Um, and Molly was like, why aren't you re- releasing In Vain as a single? That'd be yeah. a great song. I know. It was very new way, very keyboardy, very moody, very brooding. And Michael's like, yeah, yeah, we just want to get and record the next thing. So, you know, the band, you know, probably from a creative point of view, and sometimes actors are like this. Once they do something, record it, it's yours now. Mm. It's up to you now. We want to get on to the next creative endeavour. Mm. Um, so with the debut album, I guess, you know, they, they wrote a breakthrough with Just Keep Walking, which I think, you know, was around about pick number 38 possibly in the charts. But... That song really sort of opened up a, a little bit of a, um, a confidence, I think, for the band when that sort of day, debuted in the charts and became a hit single. And uh, as we've said previously, that's been sampled in the early uh, 2000s yeah. by an Italian dance act. And you can do yourself a favour by, it's called Party One, I'm So Crazy, instead of Just Keep Walking. But uh, there's a, a good mashup or whatever there of In Excess and this dance act that's fantastic.
uh, for a lot of people who don't know, they record a lot of that overnight. They were out touring and playing and then going back to the studio overnight and sort of recording that. And uh, I think when we did our deep dive on that album, B, we found uh, three or four really cool songs we added to our, our Spotify playlist from memory, things like Learn to Smile. And, you know, we I know that one stood out for us. Uh, on a Bus, I think, was on there. And, you know, from a, a, an initial point of view, what that debut album did it gave the NXS a platform. It gave them a, a confidence a as well. Yeah, mm. they were able to go uh, and get on some of the the major shows to get on shows like Sounds Unlimited and get on Countdown and get interviews going. And Michael was able to get thrusted out the front and start talking there. And you know, it was our way of getting to know the band. You know, they're on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. You know, video for those that don't know, video in Australia had been a very common thing up from the mid seventies onwards. For Australia being so isolated, that's actually how we got a lot of our music out to the world. You can go back, watch an ACDC clip from about 1976 where they do Jailbreak, and that's filmed out, I think, in sort of uh, uh, Maribyrnong or Sunshine here in Melbourne. You know, it's a very famous clip. But we, we our bands were very used to doing video. In terms of, you know, when the album came out, you know, like everything, it got them touring, it got them sort of honing their skills. It was interesting when we, I think one of those uh, live concerts that we put out a few months ago uh, in Sydney, you know, what was the venue they played at? Do you remember? In Sydney? Yeah, remember we had that live thing that got unearthed and you found all that footage and were able to play it? The Pickled Parrot. That's the one, yes. <laughs> so there was a bunch of songs that didn't make it to the first album that, you know, that are probably in archives somewhere. So, Oh, yeah, it's you know, great, that one, isn't it? Yeah, there's some songs in there we've just never really heard or there have never been B-sides or whatever. So these songs that made the sort of the main album, I guess they felt probably the best at the time. Now, a common thing a lot of young bands do, and I think NXS was smart doing this, was that, and re- reading this from Chris Murphy's book recently, is that, you know, once that one single was out and the album was there and they were touring and they wanted to go back and record, there was a pressure and there was a sort of an emphasis in those days for bands to try and have, you know, a single between albums. So if you think of the trajectory, they've done Simple Simon as a single. They've released an album where Simple Simon's not on it. And then they've done The Love One in between the first album Okay, and uh, in between that and underneath the colours. And then they've got this top 20 hit with the love one, of which I think Michael really loved, you know, the song and the history and the, the and paid homage to it. Um, and that top 20 track, like if you've got a top 20 hit, it, obviously outside the obvious being it's not number 38, but when it's top 20, you get a lot of radio sort of airplay, you know, it becomes part of the consciousness. And people who didn't really know the first song, I'm like, what's this song? This is a great song. Who's this band? Whether it's a cover or not, it gave him a profile. And I think the video got Michael a lot of, you know, a lot of good press. You know, he had that sort of very much that sort of uh, look and style when he sung that like a sort of a live version almost to video. I think Richard Clapton was uh, who produced that was the genesis for him him then being selected to go and do uh, the In Excess record, which... I think, you know, him and Chris had worked out a bit of a contra deal and a few different things there. And uh, just as an aside, I think Chris uh, veered off a free, off a highway and nearly uh, off a cliff with Richard in the car. Really? <laughs> in the, I've read in his book. And, uh, you know, Richard got out first, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> the car. But uh, there's a bit of history there with Richard and Chris in the early days. Um, okay. But, yeah, uh, I think... But, you know, yeah, you're right. It'll be interesting to hear about that song because I always think it is quite theatrical the way that he sings it. 
Yeah, and and it's really interesting. You know, I remember a certain rock journalist said, "Oh, yeah, you got the, you've got the sort of the alternative original version, and you've got the MTV version off Kick." To me, it's sort of like you see the growth in Michael's vocal off the Kick version. You see the the growth in the band's instrumentation. It's got some of those real funny, you know, little twisty dial things going on in the first version. But but yeah, around this particular time, that video got a lot, a lot, a lot of coverage here, and um, I guess it then led to working, you know, with uh, with Richard on the Underneath the Colors album, and uh, and that album sort of then you know you know consolidated in excess in the pantheon of of the, of the public, and the song Stay Young was sort of the next big hit, which was sort of a top twenty hit as well. I think it still sounds great to this day, and I know you and the girls have had a few little picnics and pilgrimages to where that video was made. Be I love that song. Be? Yeah, it's at um, Clontarf Beach. Yeah, on the northern beaches, beautiful beach. We're, I'm going to take you there this year. Okay. Well, look, one of the things about that clip and everything sort of relevant to, to, to you know, that song was, you know, it, it, that song still sounds a little bit timeless to me, you know, probably mm. out of the, the first two albums, you know. You can hear that song now and, and it still feels quite fresh. It doesn't sound dated production-wise and things. Yeah, um, yeah. When Underneath the Colours came out, they... Uh, they did actually uh, release uh, Underneath the Colours as a uh, second single. Um, and I think Andrew has often talked about the importance of the Underneath the Colours song. He felt like he was able to use that type of keyboard and instrumentation and spacing when you compare that song to Need You Tonight. There's actually quite a similarity there. The line's long and proud. No question on the lips, but Sometimes a band or a movie director or an artist will take something from an earlier release and then extrapolate it. And I think you can sort of see the genesis of some of the songs from Kick off the song Underneath the Colours. Yes. Night of Rebellion is the third single. One of the rarest singles on vinyl. Mm. It still has a, a cult following or a cult acquisition trying to find that single. Simple Simon, one of them, the French edition, <laughs> uh, and the Night of Rebellion are a couple of rare uh, vinyl singles that are, are very, very difficult to, to get. I think Richard Simpkins has probably got about four copies of each. But uh, they did release three three singles off the, uh, off the second album there. So... Um, again, 1981, that album was released. So you've got, you know, this sort of, you know, three years of touring. You've got two albums in two years. And, you know, you've got this label called Deluxe that I think Chris Murphy was suddenly realising that they weren't going to take them to the next level. Uh, and around about this particular time, you know, Chris was, um, I think, believing in the band a lot more. And it was an interesting time where, you know, he had a chance to, I guess, meet Mark Opitz. And Mark had done a lot of work with Cold Chisel at the time. Uh, and as Michael, who we mentioned uh, and have played previously, did some of that, so, uh, well, solo vocal work with uh, Don Walker from Cold Chisel yeah. for that movie soundtrack, uh, the mm-hmm. song Speed Kills. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark Opitz and then sort of Michael and, you know, Philip, Philip Mortlock and Chris Murphy and then Warners all suddenly became sort of quite close with each other. And, you know, as Marcus told our listeners, he was given a chance, you know, to listen to three songs that he, you know, to see what you can do with these songs. Uh, I think one was uh, The One Thing. The other one, I think, was Black and White. And I think the other one was Johnson's Aeroplane. Well, we know Johnson's Aeroplane at this particular time didn't make it onto Shabu Shabar. But he thought the one thing, if he could just eliminate a lot of the funny, twisty, sort of funny, sort of, uh, you know, almost, you know, uh, overproduction of some of the, the, the swirly stuff, 
he could just get that out and do more of a straightforward rock and guitar song, um, he felt like he had something sort of quite linear and lean he could sort of bring to the table. I guess the, uh, that clip, I know you and the girls are a bit of a fan of the One Thing film clip. That was really sort of where, I think from a musical leap point of view, and again, being an Australian around this particular time, and Paul Jolly, who's a big Shabu, Shabar fan, In Excess sort of really went from the bit of an alternative, this slinky little sort of scar finding its own way, to really literally dialing in a sound that became sort of a template for things to come. You know, this big crunching guitars, this biggest, you know, four-four drum sound, uh, this ability for each band member to be highlighted, and and you know, without pissing in his pocket, you know, Mark, I think really unlocked the formula to really open up, you know, where you know the punk leanings that the NXS were having towards a little bit of the pop leanings, and it's not a pop record or pop release by any shape of the word, but it, it's really lean and angular and 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 straightforward rock with some interesting sort of subtleties about it. Uh, B, what do you think about that at the time? Well, not so much me, but a lot of our American fans actually say that this is the one song that brought In Excess to the forefront for them because it was played religiously on um, MTV. Yeah. So, you know, Chris was, you know, very, very quick through his whole business career uh, about going overseas and doing R&D, which is research and development. You know, I, you know, in his book, which we will talk a bit more about at a you know, future time, like when he had set up his, his, you know, petrol records and he was doing Cuban music, he went over to Cuba and listened to things. You know, when he went over to America and was finding out about MTV or digital radio or whatever, he's been a bit of an immersive sort of guy taking in things and saying, okay, well, this stuff here is going to be here in Australia in the next three to six months. It's going to be big. Uh, this MTV thing is going to take off. We think this is something that we could really plug into. So I guess going over to America and then touring and the band, you know, I think a bit surprised when Chris said around 982, okay, we're going to America in 83 for six months. The band probably were like, we're not ready, we're not ready. But, you know, Chris had to sort of push the band to say, well, you know, the only way you get ready is by going out there and trying to jump in the deep end. And it's a bit like that's how you learn how to swim. You know, when are you ready for anything in life? So they were lucky that they had Michael's sister there at the time, Tina, and um, she put the boys up for a while and uh, she got T-shirts out for Hall of Friends and, yeah, was pushing it. So I think they were sent over before they went touring so that they could get a feel for the actual And and again, let's break this thing down. It's like 1983, you got the Us Mm. Festival, you know, in LA and, 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 you know, or California there in the Valley. You've got all those other gigs across America. They're getting onto MTV. They're getting high rotation. The the rotation of, of videos... Like it was a bit like in that era, there's about 50 videos only that got played 24 hours a day. So bands, you know, often would have, you know, the same video being played four, five, six times a day. So the one thing was one of those ones that did that. And it had that sort of beggar's banquet, sort of the last <laughs> supper, you know, yeah. the models, you know, uh, it almost had a bit of a Duran Duran sort of supermodel super <laughs> thing going on. Yeah. Um, but with Michael and the vocal and, and the sort of the guitar sort of, you know, theatrics of Timmy that really struck a chord. So correctly, there's a lot of our listeners and patrons and people listen to us 
where that's what they discovered in excess during mm-hmm. sort of those college circuit years, during some of those big festivals, during MTV at its outset. Now, when you go there, they've, they're basically there in 83. They've effectively had six years of touring practice. So, again, this narrative of being a band that can go on and play Wembley or go play a massive venue at any time, well, at this particular stage, they've had six years of, you know, literal, you know, probably 1,500 concerts at this particular point in time. So there are certain artists who, you know, have their first hit and they've never played a live concert before. You know, like, take this the right way, but Mariah Carey's not a very good live singer. Barbara Streisand has stage fright. You know, some of the certain artists around the world don't even play the material live. They don't even know how to. The studio acts only. So, you know, the touring side of things, I think, gave a credibility to, to what they were doing. And, you know, it lent towards many, many other sort of milestones and confidences later. Now, if we throw in on that particular Shibusha Bar album, in Australia, which is our focus today, the second single, Don't Change, you know, again, was a top 20 hit. Uh, we had To Look At You, a top 40 hit. Um, uh, Black and White became a top uh, 30 hit. We had sort of four songs with four really good film clips and lots and lots of radio coverage in Australia where suddenly, you know, we've got, you know, the Simple Simon, we've got uh, Just Keep Walking, we've got uh, The Loved One, we've got Stay Young, we've got under, uh, Underneath the Colour Song, we've got Night of Rebellion, we've got the four singles off Shabishwa. We're talking 10 songs now are becoming part of people's lexicon of knowledge. Mm-hmm. We're all going, oh, okay, well, Linux says, yeah, they've got more than just one in one. They've got seven, eight, ten songs that are getting radio play. The Shabu Shabat album stayed in the Australian charts for a long time. It was constantly there. The videos were being played. They were, again, getting certain bigger gigs and, and, and concert setups. There was a famous, very famous, probably filmed concert live at Selena's, which is an old sort of uh, uh, club uh, near, I think it's uh, near Bondi or Coogee. I think it's. They've just knocked it down, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, that's right. So a lot of artists and bands played there uh, over time. The exciting thing about that was that that particular gig was captured live and was played a lot on MTV five, six, seven years later. So there's be a lot of footage, you know, we mm. see Michael singing black and white, a lot of the Shabu songs. If you ever see anything live inside a sort of a, a nightclub type setup, that would be the Coogee gig. Black and white. Can you keep up with us? So that, you know, album really cemented sort of in excess artistically, you know, into the consciousness. It brought out a bigger sound. Um, it was able to be marketed internationally. They were able to tour. You know, England probably didn't give them a time of day, nor was Europe a focus of theirs. But, you know, America had jumped on board, which was was, was exciting. Mm-hmm. So around about this time, you know, those songs were, you know, especially off Shibu Shabar, were becoming sort of everyday sort of staples, you know, around the schoolyard and, just felt like you know they were becoming sort of uh, a known entity and not just here for the for the short haul. So you know those four singles in the album probably in Australia sort of was in our consciousness for at least twelve months, and that's what happened a lot of the time. The bands if they could release four or five singles off an album, uh, and the album got regular rotation on the on the on the sort of the the, the radio live you know gigs 
you know, uh, TV show appearances, the videos, etc. There, uh, the shelf life of an album was aimed to be at least 12 months, and that's what Shibu Shabar was. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have access to informational social media or whatever there. So any skerrick of information coming out about a band you liked or a song or something about to be released, radio is probably where you heard something. You know, there might be the odd publication of Rolling Stone or whatever, but even then that wasn't sort of ever present for a 12-year-old. Um, so radio was probably the place um, or uh, uh, on TV, you know, in our case in Australia, Countdown or Sounds Unlimited or some of the video shows were the only places you'd really find out what was happening. Uh, and often it was very exciting. So when, when Original Sin sort of came out of the blocks, and I think we did a, a deep dive on this song. I didn't know who the band was when they came out with the song. It played on the radio and I'm like, who's this, who's this? And then, you know, we didn't actually find out who it was because the DJ didn't say it. And when I found out it was in excess and I'm going, wow, like we talk about a musical leap from the underneath the Colours album to what Mark did with Shabu Shabar. Well, another massive musical leap from, you know, what they did with Shabu to the song Original Sin. That particular song there in Australia, for those who, who don't know, is the only single or any song ever that's hit number one on the singles charts in their home country. So I know a lot of people are surprised by that because they've had number one hits around the world. I think they've had six in Canada alone. But in Australia, they've only ever had really one standalone number one hit, which was uh, Original Sin. Um, I think Good Times might have hit number two, but that was with Jimmy and it wasn't an original song. When that song off the swing came with the film clip and Michael on the Harley or the motorbike bee, um, it was sort of like, wow, this is this is like a, a massive jump. It was a bit like what U2 did when they came out with uh, Pride in the Name of Love off the Unforgettable Fire that that come from sort of uh, some of the earlier albums. So this big musical jump as well. You know, around this particular time, around Christmas, they released the song, the single, the hit number one in the new year, and it really salivated Australian audiences to go, well, what's going to be on this next album, uh, which obviously became The Swing. Around that particular time in Australia, we had a band called Cold Chisel with Jimmy Barnes, who was on the way out. They were sort of virtually retiring. And we had Midnight Oil as another eminent band. And there was probably sort of two camps. You were either in the In Excess camp a little bit or in the Midnight Oil camp. Um, so this particular sort of time and a place was sort of, I guess, there were these sort of two warring sort of uh, bands. We had, uh, not, not between them, but amongst the fan base, you know, and... As we know, In Excess's uh, original manager was Midnight Oil's manager, Gary Morris. So, yeah, so around this particular time, as I said, we had sort of the uh, Midnight Oil Power and the Passion and the 10 to 1 album, and we had uh, In Excess's The Swing album coming. Interestingly thing uh, here, B, they were actually produced by the same uh, person, Nick Lorne. So um, we know when we spoke to Mark the other week, he said something on the lines of, you know, as soon as he heard 10 to 1 by Midnight Oil, he goes, I know who's producing in excess next. And Nick was sort of the go-to guy around that time for a lot of bands, both domestic and overseas. As a young guy and around this particular time, in excess took a massive jump amongst the popularity, I think amongst the females around this time. Michael, as we'll throw to you, B, looked particular sex, particularly sexy in these videos from your point of view. Is that right? 
Yeah, so always looks sexy. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Around this particular time, B, uh, Michael was becoming a little bit more the, the international uh, sex symbol off these uh, swing singles here, B. Now, uh, I know you became a big fan of something like these, but you go back to the swing album. Uh, Michael's looking pretty hot in these videos, isn't he, B? Yes, very, very. <laughs> <laughs> Swing, you know, we've got the, sing- the singles that follow. I send a message, number two. I think Burn for You, number three. Dancing, Dancing on the Jetty, number 38. Then they've had all these other songs off the swing that seem to get radio airplay. Well, I think that and the kick album, they played so many of the non album tracks on the radio. It was like they, radio at that time couldn't get enough of them and the band. So songs like Johnson's Aeroplane got played on the radio. Melting in the Sun got played on the radio. Swing got played on the radio. All the Voices was in a movie, got played on the radio. It was the album where, I think it's the only album where they've got 10 songs, but they were all played on the radio. What had occurred during this particular time was this band sort of crossed over commercially to a point where, you know, maybe Shabu Shabar went a couple of times platinum. This went sort of four or five times platinum for the band, which in the size of Australia at that time, was a massive, massive change there. And um, do you remember what Mark said the other week regarding the David Bowie stuff, you know, with the concert at the time and when he was coming out and he wanted to get in excess to support them? Yeah, remember, I remember that? that. Yeah, I do. Chris was trying to be clever and not actually promote NXS as the support band, but as a surprise guest. And ultimately around that time, NXS were probably the biggest band that year in Australia. Hence, you know, touring acts who weren't selling out their tickets wanted to use NXS as, as a support arm. And what were your biggest radio stations back then? We had uh, in 84, around this time, we had a thing called Eon FM, which was now the equivalent of Triple M. Okay. There was Fox FM then. But probably on the AM dial, we had 3XY. That was the sort of the, the historic, you know, major thing around that AM radio period because FM was just still a bit of a, a mute thing. It wasn't really sort of a big thing around then. Just to pause and back up a little bit, around this sort of time, this is where the band... You know, suddenly when we came to our award sessions, we had a thing called the Countdown Music Awards, which are the same as the Arias. These were a pre- prelude to the Arias. Now, our listeners can Google this, B, and they can go to the uh, to the Countdown Awards that year and in excess scoop seven awards and they pick up awards from people like Sting, who's out there um, co-hosting or comparing with Molly Meldon. Mm-hmm. Um, on that particular gig, there's a very famous song at the end with cowboy hats and a lady called Jenny. That's right. It's a cool song, isn't it? Yeah. Play a bit. We got mad in a fever. Hotter than a pepper sprout. We've been talking about Jackson ever since the fire went out. Don't Jackson. Don't mess around. Yeah, I'm going to Jackson. This sort of, I guess, if you think about a band, and I think reading this in Chris's book, you couldn't help if you think about each band member, they probably started to make some money. They probably started to, I think, 
you know, uh, you know, look at moving out and moving into separate places a little bit. And then a lot of the songwriting, I think, as Kirk said to us on his episode, well, we all live together. But when you see the band songwriting, not fracture, but sort of, I guess, going to different entities, well, John and Michael started living in Hong Kong. So hence you saw them writing together. Um, and across the board, I guess, you know, the band started making some money. Um, they were pretty much like, well, you know, why do we want to go necessarily overseas and sacrifice all what we've got here? But Chris, again, was like, no, nah, we've got a tour. We've got to go overseas. We've got to take this global. And, he, you know, this was the time where Richard Lowenstein uh, got involved with the Burn For You film clip, uh, which, you know, we would probably say for the NXS's band was a very much, a, I don't want to say a game changer, but it was a really pivotal uh, 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 happening where, you know, Richard met the band, was able to go to Mackay, able to film the band, take them to London, film them over there, and start to see them reach out globally into the UK and become more international. Now, for you, did you hear much of the Swing album before Listen Like Thieves gig you went to? Or it really was not something that was you were really aware of? Um well, no, not really. Um, yeah. Well, I obviously heard some of the songs at the gig and then went yeah. back and bought the album. But prior yes. to the gig, no. Because I guess, again, part of this topic today is how do they climb international? How do they get to that level? Well, you know, again, you don't turn up at Wembley or turn up at the Major League, you know, stadium and suddenly just rip out, you know, 25 songs live in front of an audience. In excess, toured around Australia in 83, 84, you know, with some fantastic big festival gigs and some big stadium gigs. And there was, I think, the Drop the Bomb gig, you know, uh, or Void Dropping the Bomb gig or whatever down at City Mile Music Bowl. Um, there's some fantastic footage. And I know on YouTube uh, you've, you've done a lot of research since, you know, probably being in, a, being in Australia and doing this podcast. But, you know, there's some great footage, even with, I think, our, our little um, promo for this uh, clip. You've got the band on the Sydney Harbour Bridge with the swing album in their hand, I think, haven't you? I did, yeah. Tell us a bit about how you put that photo together. Was that a bit of Photoshop or a little bit of creative uh, beisms? A bit, a bit of both, yeah. <laughs> I, I stretched it and put a little flag in there, but I thought it looked yes. lovely that they had the uh, Harbour Bridge and um, yeah. the uh, Opera House in the background. So I just yeah. thought it looked quite cool. Well, I mean, look, this, this is probably, you know, from a band point of view, this is probably where... Michael suddenly appeared on front pages of magazines, you know, you know, not band magazines or music magazines, but Dolly and all these sort of publications that were coming around. Mm. Um, he was now being seen as this sex symbol, you know, the pressure to, to live up to some. Mm. Yeah, the pressure to live up to superstardom sort of came. I think as Chris has said, and I think as the band has said, the fact that the, he lived in LA as a 16-year-old for a year or two and lived in Hong Kong and had an international sort of, you know, experience or two, held him in good stead when he was being interviewed. It held him in good stead to handle sort of the acclaim that came his way and mix and mingle in interviews with different sort of people. But uh, he uh, and the band, probably their lives changed on the swing, B. They went from sort of sort of indie band sort of with some sort of uh, chart success to crossing over into sort of the commercial sort of, you know, landscape where an album became probably the number one selling album in Australia for the year. And, you know, you couldn't walk down the street even if you were Kirk and not get noticed. And this was probably, again, this sort of preparation, well, can you, you know, handle it if you take it to another country and get massive there? 
this was a, a great sort of breeding ground for them to, to do that. And now you go to a live concert in 84 for In Excess, you got the, you know, the five or six, seven well-known songs off the swing. You got the four or five off the off Shabu. You got a couple, well, two or three off underneath the colours. You know, you got you know the uh, the first album, the debut album, Simple Simon. You got the, the cover of um, the Love One. Suddenly, you can go to an Inexcess concert in 1984. You know, and you can know 15, 16, 17 songs that are getting played. You know, because of radio and chart success. Mm-hmm. So again. You know, they've only had one top 40 hit at this stage in America. They haven't had a top 40 hit in England at this stage. Mm. But here you are having a band that's almost had a career of some level of success in their home country and they haven't really, you know, broken through massively overseas just yet. I know for yourself, you would probably love if we could go back in the time machine uh, and go back to a certain time and place. Um, uh, I know myself, I was probably too young to go to concerts there. I never went to any of these gigs at the time. Uh, they were radio and a TV band for me. But what was but, your um, first gig then? was the X Factor Tour. I didn't go to the kick tour. I was 17 at the time and had, oh. had my year 12 exams on when they were touring. Yeah, well, I was yeah, just thinking. So I didn't get a chance to see Listen Like Thieves. You didn't? Okay. All right. Well, I was just thinking no. while she was talking then no. about. Like, I made up for it. <laughs> you, had, you did. When you were talking then, I was thinking of the layers and like the progression of the band. Yes, the music was superb and it was getting you know better and better and the videos were getting better and better. But Michael, like you say, was getting more confident and Tim and Andrew um, getting interviewed. But Michael was just so well read and articulate when he spoke that he was an interesting guy to, to watch. Sure. And that's what I fell in love with. I thought he's more than a pop star. He's actually a really gorgeous human being. And I think yeah. that was compelling to watch him being interviewed just as much as singing. Yes. And I think maybe, was it was it 84 or 85 when he was on the tube with uh, Paula? That would have been um, around about 85, 86 when I okay. saw them because it yeah. just happened. Because yeah. the thing about this particular stage now. And she didn't even you, know who they were. <laughs> well, you know, she put the picture of him up on the fridge afterwards, didn't she? So. <laughs> But the thing about this era that's interesting, now let's just sideline ourselves from an excess for the moment. 1984, let's look at that year in music. You've got Tina Turner on a comeback. You've got, the, you know, the synth new wave thing that's really taken off with Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Nick Kershaw, uh, Tears for Fears, uh, Wham. Paul you know, massive, Young was really Paul good. Young, a massive yeah. explosion. Around that time, you've got a little bit more sort of this sort of nerdy sort of rock thing going on in America with Sticks and Huey Lewis and the News and some of those sort of, you know, uh, kitschy bands, you know, et cetera, around that particular time, the cars and things. But for In Excess, the swing album, you could feel that they were having, I won't say a bet each way, but you had, you know, a couple of songs that are very symbolic. I'm having a rainstorm as I talk right now. can't hear it. You're <laughs> so, right. That's okay. If the listeners can, we've had a monsoon here in Melbourne today. Uh, but, yeah, so you've got some songs that of that era are a bit of that era. Like Send a Message is very keyboardy, and even the keyboard part of Burn For You is is, is it quite – it's probably two songs that are very 1984 in terms of their sonics. 
Uh, but then you've got the funk of Original Sin. You've got the experimentation, you know, of a, a song like Johnson's Aeroplane. You can hear the Shabu Shabar influence. You know, you've got Love Is What I Say that's sort of dark and brooding. It's got a bit of a to look at you feel. They're really sort of going out with a bit of a mixture and it's a much wider palette of songs that they're really starting to stretch themselves musically. And I think, again, it sort of set them up for, you know, the next album with some like Thieves that obviously, you know, did very well. But, um, uh, yeah, 1984, the band were really everywhere in Australia. Interestingly as well, there's been a leap from going from sort of Adelaide where NXS filmed, I think, Spy Love. They might have filmed uh, uh, Don't Change, The One Thing, et cetera. There may be one thing in Sydney. But, they, you know, they've done Broken Hill, you know, uh, with some some tracks. They've done Mackay, Cairns, Bondi Beach, et cetera there. But suddenly on the swing, it was becoming more of an international sound. You know, they were filming in Japan and Hong Kong and uh, did part of, you know, the uh, Burn For You clip in London and, they were starting to go a little more global, you know, with their reach. And, you know, when you go a little bit more global and the band was getting a lot of success, you know, there's certain producers and video artists were chasing them down a bit. So when it came to doing the Listen Like Thieves album in 85, uh, two famous guys from Godly and Cream, uh, who originally in 10CC, who had moved into video production, they filmed the This Time clip in London. You know, Richard Lowenstein, a Lowenstein that had such a massive effect on Burn For You and was a bit of a game changer, well, you know, he came up with the What You Need clip and stuff like that, which was a fantastic sort of uh, clip that really, to me, is I still think their best video clip they've ever done. You know, they had, you know, the Outback Broken Hill and Cooper Pedy, whatever there of, you know, of this, uh, sorry, of um, Kiss the Dirt. You know, we had the Listen Like Thieves apocalyptic clip, you know, being made uh, by Richard, you know, there. And, and you know, they were just things were getting a bit bigger. You could feel the groundswell. And, again, as an invested fan or as, as, a, as a part of a, I guess, a sort of a, an Australian citizen seeing a band climb from the, the dingy pubs or the boondocks of, of deserts in terms of knowing what they did to suddenly winning awards in Australia and getting, uh, they were part of the Live Aid thing where they were our nominated selection to play two songs that have been to Live Aid across the world, which I think might have been this, uh, might have been uh, What You Need and it may have been uh, Don't Change. I think, but they were now seen as our biggest band and our, our great white hope to do something. Because out of Australia, just for a bit of sideline history, the major, major artists came out of here, ACDC, you know, Olivia Newton-John, the Bee Gees, but all those people weren't born here. They were part of the 10-pound Pobham family. Olivia Newton-John's family came out of here when she was young. The ACDC boys came out from Scotland, you know, in their youth. You know, the Bee Gees moved from England out here to Brisbane, you know, in their youth. So they all sort of gravitated back home to their original sort of places and went global. But these these Aussie boys, these six Aussie guys and Chris is the seventh, was sort of our sort of our, our chance to sort of, you know, I guess make it on the big stage, okay? Uh, and from that sort of point of view, um, you know, there was just, you could just feel a growing bee. And I guess the only sort of spanner in the works was the original sin, which should have been that number one hit globally. It was in France and a few places, Argentina. But it's stiffed in America, which I think cost the band a couple of years of momentum. You know, it was the lyrics. It was racially sort of, you know, yeah. contentious. You know, Noel Rogers helped produce and help, to, you know, move a lyric or two around. But, you know, it's probably the song that, you know, is more infamous than famous in America where someone threw a gun on the stage when they were playing. Yeah. And, mm. You know, radio stations weren't going to play it. And, and back, it wasn't like it was sort of Madonna, let's ban the songs everyone goes, buys it. They were an emerging band. They didn't have leverage yet. Yeah. But, you know, sort of felt that they deserved a lot better off the swing in America. And I think the saving grace was when Kick blew up in America massively, people in America went back and bought the swing. Yeah. So it sold a couple of million units there afterwards. But 
at the time, it was a little bit of a uh, stumble commercially, not not artistically, probably commercially it was, which sort of leads us into the Listen Like Thieves stuff, which is sort of your little wheelhouse where you saw them for the first time. In fact, we could sit here on the podcast, B, and safely say you saw NXS live before me. Yeah, I didn't even realise that. Thank I never you. even thought about it. But yeah, yeah. well, that's because I'm a lot yeah, older, absolutely. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's just because you're a little bit older in age there. Well, and, I just uh, said that, didn't I? Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry, this is a little monsoon here. You don't understand what we're doing here to get this podcast out. I can't hardly hear myself or you. But yeah, so when it came to listen like Thieves stuff, you know, uh, and Chris Thomas came into the scene, as we all know, and, you know, we're probably not going to go into listen like Thieves sort of album per se, because... Well, Beta was released in sort of late 85. This album represented in 86 more so after March 86. I think March 86 onwards is that time where NXS broke in America with a top five hit. But what was exciting was, I think, and Mark Opitz was there and a part of it, was that the success NXS had had in Australia and then leading up to recording all the albums so far and then having, you know, some, some of the couple of tracks off, off Listen Like These Do Well the Australian-made concert series with all those artists that we talked about this time last year, pardon the pun, in excess, you know, touring the Australian-made gig was almost like a sort of not a goodbye, but it was almost a bit like that's the end of an era in Australia. They were about to go overseas, you know, literally six weeks after Australian-made, they got their first top five hit in America. It's very close. You know, Australian-made, they're playing Australia Day 1986. Early March, they got a top five hit in America and the world opened up. Millions of albums in America, film clips, nomination, MTV Music Awards. You know, Michael, you know, they cracked America. When you get a top five hit, the album, you know, sold a couple of million there. You know, he was suddenly on all the covers of the magazines, the band were. You know, it was like, okay, here's the next, the next frontier. Australia made was almost like Oasis Glastonbury for them. Yeah. Or Network, Nedworth, you know. It was like mm. everything led up to Australia made in a way. Now, that's just my opinion. I'm not saying it's gospel, but if you think back to it, that's the first half of their sort of major international, well, their major career was 77 to, to January 86, where for nine years they became the biggest band in Australasia. And it was like, okay, boys, you're ready for the big leagues. That's right. And you know what? They, they went off and they then sort of joined the big leagues literally six weeks after Australia made, you know. Uh, everything was sort of a culmination, you know, they – they, they were prepared to take the mantle and, and go commit overseas and do the hard yards where some of our local bands weren't prepared to do it mm-hmm. or they burnt themselves out or they didn't have the drive and the energy to do it. Mm. But, you know, I guess as we celebrate this Australia Day sort of weekend or whatever there, you know, and I say to a lot of people, you know, oh, in excess, the kick old mix, I go, well, you know what, do yourself a favour. Go back and check out 1977, you know, in terms of live recordings through to 1985, 86, and you'll see, you'll, you'll open up a bunch of songs and albums. You go, fantastic. Like everyone goes, oh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction, fantastic. Well, you know, go get Reservoir Dogs. There'd be no Pulp Fiction without Reservoir Dogs. You know, that movie inspired the other one. Yeah. And some of the great artists and things like that, if you go back and dive deep on their earlier work, whether it's Monet or Vincent van Gogh or whatever they're, sometimes, you know, their earlier work, you know, informs their later work. And I just, you know... I think when we see the fruits of the labour of Wembley and, you know, Concert for Life and all these major breakthrough gigs overseas all got honed from this beautiful country of ours, a country that you call home, okay, the country that you rate much higher than England, obviously, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the country that you, 
Miguel be a citizen very soon. But um, in excess, Australia Day week, we salute you. We're proud of you. We hope that this particular episode uh, can be filed away. If you haven't listened to much of these songs or gone back and to this era, you know, go back and see where it all started. Look at like an origin story. Where did Batman begin? <laughs> Thanks, B. Thanks, Aiden. This is Sheila from Birmingham, Alabama. Hey, this is Susan from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, this is Maiti from Montreal, Canada. This is Suzanne from Los Angeles, California. And that's a wrap. Well, thank you very much, Hayden. That was really good that you concised everything together there. It was um, a really good listen. I just sat back and uh, listened to you. It was really good. I think I've um, learned a little bit more, as I always do. A lot thank of research. You. Mm. Well, look, you know, weirdly enough, I, I'm going to contradict you there. I didn't do much research at all. What I just tried to do was just go back through a lived experience and go, well, this is sort of, you know, a bit of a band of my youth that hopefully some of our listeners and patrons and people of my vintage or era and also my homeland can remember and relate to this as, a, as, as what it was at the time. I know in America, a lot of REM fans like love the first five REM albums and really don't like everything from green or automatic for the people onwards or, or out of time. So there are those bands with 10, 12 albums. Often there's those real historic fans who love the first four or five albums of a band's catalogue. And if you haven't listened or know much about it, go back and check it out. So yeah, thank you for giving me the floor to share anyway, B. Yeah, and I'd like to say if anyone's really enjoyed that and they like to hear a little bit more about the individual albums, if you go back, we have different episodes on, on different albums. I think we're yep. up to... Welcome to wherever you are now. So you can go right back. And also we've been deep diving into quite a lot of songs as well, haven't we? We have, absolutely. Uh, and 100%. We've, got, we've got one coming up next week, have we, Hayden? Well, we look over the next couple of are weeks. Are you keeping I mean... it in your bag still? <laughs> you better let it out for me. Well, I can, what I could say, a next deep dive song is a song relevant to this era, this this first part of their career. Okay. Um, but with Richard Clapton and maybe the, Richard Lowenstein, the Lowenstein coming on, and then a Zoom call, we've got lots of really exciting things we, we can share with people. Okay. Uh, over the next few weeks. All right. Fan What's engagement that? B. I'm voting well. you for fan engagement. Oh, you want me to go fan engagement first? Okay. Yeah. So there's a, a lovely girl called Sharon that I speak to, and she put this out probably about back in um, 2018, but she wrote it out again. And it just highlights a lot of Michael's um, lyrics and um, song titles into his life. Michael Hutchins is phenomenal and timeless legacy is best understood by his profound music. Michael, you are a shining star, the messenger, the loved one who was heaven sent. You taught us to have faith in each other. You truly cared about others, let a wild life with good and bad times and kept searching for the one thing of what love is. You are so much larger than life, and we love to hear that sound of your incredible voice. Heartfelt lyrics and unique songs that transcend traditional music. Regrettably, we fame came the unrelenting thunder of tiny daggers of a media storm and personal strife that cut your roses down. And you are the one who pays the price. Very few realize you were just a man and how much you suffered inside 
tragically, you had not enough time on earth as you felt you could not put the pieces back together of your shattered life and didn't see the possibilities other than to kill the pain and slide away. You sang in your song, Never Tear Us Apart. I told you if you could fly, cause we all have wings, but some of us don't know why. We hope you were able to make your peace and obtain freedom deep within you. You greatly loved your beautiful girl, Tiger, as she was everything to you. It's unfortunate that you are not here to share your life with her. Michael, you are sadly missed and you will never disappear in our hearts. All around, you have made the world a better place with the gift of your beautiful voice and extraordinary music that's still calling all nations and continues to touch the lives of millions. You will stay forever young and your legacy will live on forever. That was by Sharon Van Fossen. I'm such a Show me some. All right. Uh, now, across all of the various platforms, just for, for those who are relatively new to us, Bea, where can people correspond and sort of get in contact with us throughout the week? Well, you can correspond with either of us, if you know us, by our uh, messenger. We quite like yep. that one. That's nice and easy. Otherwise, yep. we do like to um, get emails. So in excess AAA at gmail.com is the one that will come through to us and we can give you lots of um, pointers of where to go because not everybody's on Facebook, even though that is our, our chosen um, media that we use a lot of. You can also speak to us through the chat on our website. So the website is inaccessaccessallareas.com. Just um, uploaded the auction onto our homepage on the website so you can go straight from a link there. So so me and Hayden spoke about it last week, but I didn't get to get it up until Thursday of this week. So I hope you can all have a look at that. I've got lots of people interested already. It's live at Wembley with some very much keynote signatures, yeah? Yeah, very much so. It's got Marco Pitts, the legendary producer, and also um, Andrews. I want to keep it, though. I don't think <laughs> I'm going to let it go. <laughs> So beautiful signature format, uh, the, the actual book, book that's signed on the outside and then also the CD itself. So uh, if our last uh, few auctions have got anything to go by, we look forward to a happy home uh, this going to. Just back to the engagers, though, B, was there a couple of other people you wanted to mention at all who you'd come across your, uh, your desk that you want to highlight? I sure would. I'd like to say hello to some of our new um, followers on Twitter. So here we go. Hello to Hillary, Missy B, Susan, Nicola B, Jimbo, Rue, Nazaf, Linda, Yo Yo, Nikki H, Glenn, Mr. Blu ray, Martin, Kimberly, Vinny, Ariana, Taylor, Diane, Veronica, Monica, Parry, painful puns. <laughs> Lee, Maria, Kelly R, Heath, D-Day, Ellen, Jeff, EJ, Eric, Carlos, Noble, and Frankie J, to name but a few. Yeah, we had over 50 um, people this week um, follow us on Twitter. So um, yeah, welcome. 
All right. Now, we one thing we are doing, I think you just did before too, be about past episodes and albums, but we'd like to also just highlight one past episode a week. This week, a year ago, it was, a, it was obviously Australia Day as well, and we did a big sort of uh, deep dive into Australian made. So uh, we were quite proud of that episode, and I think it was something that Mark Opitz might have first listened to us then and got in touch with us. So uh, if you don't know much about that uh Massive concert series there. Uh, check out that uh, episode. It's probably in the the, the mid twenties or roughly around there, I guess. Be where we so. did that one. Mm, might be mm. might be thirties actually. If we've done fifty two since, <laughs> but it is uh, one that probably has some 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 connections with today as well, which is good. I guess going out today, B. What I thought we would do quite interesting there about this particular uh, period, uh, B, for going out with all the normal tribute songs and things like that, is we might do a quick little medley going out. To today of a few little hits around this particular time. So if you are a listener of NXS and know them, fantastic. If you are a person who is uh, less inclined or knowledgeable of certain tracks that were hits down under that we think you should go check out, if you're a listener like these onwards person, go back to some of these songs because they are some some of the best songs in their career. So we're going to do a little medley going out. We won't tell you what they are, but uh, we will ask you to enjoy what we can say, though, the very last one we're going to go out with uh, on this medley will be a quick little sort of excerpt from the Live at the Countdown Music Awards with the song Jackson uh, with Michael and the band with Jenny Morris. Uh, after scooping the pool that night, they got up on stage. I think Michael had the Stetson or the Cobra hat on uh, uh, memory there, B. That's right. No, he had the um, the big jacket. What do you call them? Those big- oh, the big, uh, the big um, dryser bone. It dries a bone, yeah. 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 Victor, um, did you like that I put on um, the little song last week at the end there? Mm. Hayden, you didn't listen to the end like all the other listeners. Uh, I haven't <gasps> listened to last week's episode. You found me out. Oh, I found you out. So yeah. last week I couldn't not end because it was, um, would you call it an earworm, was saying play shine like it does. So for Michael, it really connects with me. So so, uh, yeah, I put, I put it on and it was from Pop Park, you know, what Carrie Ann's um, sent us. So it was a rare recording and it's great. It's beautiful. All right, but we're going to go with our tribute song today. We're going to go with a bit of a medley of great in excess songs of this era and this early era for uh, Australian fans particularly and those in Australasia. If you've been a, a Listen Like Thieves Onwards fan, well, some of these songs might be new to you. If you're a hardcore fan, hello, Paul Jolly, these songs would be music to your ears. I'm not going to mention what they are, although we will say the last one's going to be a little excerpt from the Live at the Countdown Music Awards when in excess scooped the pool. And Michael was wearing his Dryzerbone uh, B and uh, had that sort of the country theme with the song Jackson, which was, I think, a, might have been a song that uh, Nancy Sinatra might have sung in the 60s there amidst the mothers. But it's with great joy that we've had fun today. It's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody.
Real fast. 